You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We now turn towards the reading of God's Word. And our first reading is from Romans 8. And if you want to follow along, we start in verse 18, which is page 944 in our Pew Bibles. And as we like to remind each other every week, this is a Bible that you can take home if you do not have one to make use of. Please consider this a gift from Redeemer Church. Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, friends, let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. If you still have a Bible in hand, you're going to turn back a number of pages to the gospel of John, and I believe you'll find that on page 886. John chapter 1. Friends, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning, y'all. 
For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. Thanks for visiting. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. And by way of orientation, we are beginning the season of Epiphany. Having anticipated the coming of Christ in Advent and then celebrated his arrival in Christmas, we now turn to the illumination of the person and work of Jesus in the season of Epiphany. And so it's appropriate for us in this season to do something, or at least attempt to do something, that in the past six years in the life of this church, we have never done before, which is we're going to take the next seven weeks, and with this sermon series, we are going to seek to clarify our reason for existing as a church. You see, the reason for the existence of a church like Redeemer is certainly not self-evident to our neighbors and to our city. And it's not even self-evident to many Christians today. I mean, so many, more and more people, especially younger generations, are increasingly identifying as what you might call spiritual but not religious, which is a way of saying, I follow Jesus, but I'm not a part of the institutional church, right? So why the institutional church? Why does a place like Redeemer exist? Well, Y'all, there are a lot of ways to talk about this. There are a lot of ways that we could describe the why behind and beneath the existence of a church like ours. But what we've done is we have distilled and I hope focused and clarified our why down to one sentence. And if you still have a liturgy in hand, if you flip to the, the page that's just the inside cover, you'll see it there. Gospel formation for missional presence. Okay, that's our one sentence phrase, gospel formation for missional presence. Now, that's, that's a, there's a lot of meaning embedded in that, so let me break that down for us. Gospel, what do we mean when we say the word gospel? That's a word that gets thrown around both inside churches and outside of churches, and people can mean a lot of different things when they say the word gospel. So what do we mean? Well, when we say gospel, we mean how in Jesus Christ, God takes his creation, which has because of sin fallen into ruin, and redemptively restores it in every part until the time of consummation at which all things will at last be made new. When we say gospel, it's a very pregnant word, filled with meaning. And that's a summary of what we mean by the word gospel. But then there's that word formation. What do we mean by formation? Well, we mean the intentional adoption of practices and habits in order to reshape our internal life with God and self and our external lives with others and the world. Gospel formation, and then missional. By missional, we mean the posture and intention of God throughout universal history is to bring about his good purposes in the world. God is on a mission, and the church is invited and called to participate in that mission. And then presence, the nature and manner by which the church participates in the mission of God is through faithful presence. This is why Redeemer exists, and I would offer to you It is why the church, capital C, exists. Gospel formation for missional presence. If you wanted to phrase it differently, you might say, God is renewing all things in Jesus, and that reality reshapes individual and communal lives of the followers of Jesus so that they can participate in what God is doing in the world. Now, that sounds really big and grand. Let's get a little more practical. How do we go about participating? How do we go about practicing gospel formation for missional presence? Well, very simply, we do this by embodying, by taking up the seven essential practices of the ancient church. What has the church always done from the beginning? And those are practices of story and identity and belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. 
story by telling the story of the Bible as the true and better narrative in which to understand God, ourselves, each other, and the world. Identity, embracing a new identity in Jesus that is received and stable and secure. Belonging, finding belonging in the church family and extending that belonging and hospitality to strangers. Virtue, cultivating virtue through our redemptive habits. Context, seeking to understand our place and time, our context in the city, in this cultural moment. Vocation, laboring for renewed vocations for the common good. And then lastly, imagination, reordering our loves and our affections and our imaginations through mystery and beauty. And these seven practices are a means of answering these seven foundational essential questions that, listen, every human being, both inside and outside the church, is already in the process of seeking to answer. These are questions just about what does it mean to be a human being? Questions like, what story am I in? Who am I? Where do I belong? How do I change? Where do I make my life? What is my purpose and how do I love? And over the past months, as I've discussed this kind of clarified, focused vision with some of Redeemer's vestry and staff, a number of people have very intelligently asked some really good questions, uh, some probing questions. And they've said, hey, Dan, there are some words missing from this that I would expect to see in a kind of normal, average church vision statement. Where are the words like worship or justice or evangelism or discipleship? Aren't those key practices of the church too? And the answer is absolutely, of course they are. But they involve many, if not all, of the other seven. Worship lies at the intersection of story, identity, belonging, virtue, and imagination. Justice absolutely lies at the intersection of vocation and context, right? The idea was not to make an exhaustive list of all the different specific practices that a follower of Jesus might do, but rather to introduce the essential categories, the angles, so that we might be holistic and fully formed in our gospel formation, and so that we can be holistic in our embodied practices, in our missional presence. And so we've selected these seven practices because they are creational and because they are eternal. And as we'll see through this series, human beings were created for all of these things, and we will be practicing these things forever you will always be answering these questions. Even in eternity, you will still be in the process of answering these questions. For example, we were made for identity in God and we will always be receiving our identity in Jesus. Another example will be, is that we are made for good and creative work in the world. And even in eternity, we will always be laboring for the common good. There's no expiration date on any of these practices. Now, another probing question I've gotten has been, why practice-based? Why not doctrine-based? Why not belief-based? Why are we talking about practices? Well, the very simple answer is that so that we can own and embody this together. The goal is not so much to get us all believing the same thing. That is like a goal, but it's like subpoint four, section F. That's, it's too low of a goal. We need higher goals than just believing all the same things. The goal is that we might grow to become a true embodiment of the love and redemption of Jesus. The goal is to actually live and be the new redeemed humanity in Jesus. And we are not transformed primarily by our beliefs, but by our practices. Therefore, what we do together must be practice-based. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started on practice number one, story, okay? Okay.
Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Stories, the practice of story. Why are stories so important to us? Well, listen, we don't live according to principles and propositions. You and I live according to stories, which is another way of saying the things that you and I believe have a plot. They have a script to them. For example, uh, your average high school student uh, may believe that cheating is wrong. They believe in the doctrine, the principle, the proposition that cheating is wrong. But if that college student lives by the narrative that they must get good grades to get into a good college, to get a successful job, to get a beautiful family, to, so that they can afford and purchase a historic house in the you know, row house in the fan district, like if that's the script, that's the narrative plot of life, then the likelihood of them cheating on a test when they are desperate is actually pretty high, even if they still believe it to be wrong. Why? Because the life script, the life story, the life plot is more powerful than the standalone doctrine or the principle. We began this service by reading this poem, The Naked Truth, which I love because it's so simple and so obviously self-evidently true. Stories are more powerful than facts. We are immersed in stories. Human beings are these story creatures. Uh, I've recently been reading this book um, by Jonathan Gottschall called The Storytelling Animal. And I'll quote from him a few times this morning, but in one place in the book, he writes, in the same way that plankton isn't aware that it's tumbling through salt water, human beings are not aware that we are constantly moving through story from novels to films to religious myths to dreams to fantasies to jokes to pro-wrestling and to children's make-believe stories. Human beings are story creatures, and so human society is chock-full of stories. We are always telling ourselves stories, and we're always telling each other stories. And we do this in order to make sense of our lives and to make sense of each other. I mean, if your coworker comes into the office and says, whew, had a rough morning. If you're cold-hearted and you don't have a pulse, you might just say, sorry, or that stinks. But if you have a pulse and you've got, you know, red blood in your veins, you probably will respond with something like, what happened? Which is another way of saying, tell me the story, right? I want to understand. And in order to understand, what do I need? Not just facts. I need the story. Um, if you're anything like me, and you maybe recently realized, perhaps during COVID quarantine, that you have a short temper, uh, you won't stop at just realizing that fact about yourself. You'll begin to probe and delve deeper. You'll begin to ask questions. You might begin to think back over the events of your life, maybe even back to your childhood, to find the conditions that have shaped you to have anger problems. Because in order to understand yourself, what do you need to understand? Your own story, Right? We are always telling ourselves stories. Uh, Gottschall writes in that book, The Storytelling Animal, we as a species are addicted to stories. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories, right? That's what dreams are. Um, there's a, a world-renowned philosopher named Alistair McIntyre who writes, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I could answer the prior question, of what story do I find myself a part? In other words, before you answer any other question about yourself, you first have to have a sense of what kind of story you're in. And this is why on the way to Mordor, Sam Gamgee says to Frodo, 
I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Which I think is such a fascinating way to say it because in saying that, what is Sam doing? He's saying, there's already a story happening and we appear to have been dropped into something. So I ask you, what sort of tale have you fallen into? What sort of story are you in? Your answer to that question will be one of the most, if not the most, significant thing about you. It will certainly be the most shaping and formative thing about you. Because human minds are shaped for story so that we can be shaped by stories. And so it's worth asking, what sort of narratives are you and I most tempted to believe about ourselves and about the world? And even as I say that, there's probably some of you who are sitting there thinking like, hey man, I'm like, I know you're old, but I don't know if you got the postmodern memo. We don't do meta-narratives anymore, okay? We don't do stories. We don't do big tales that describe life, the universe, and everything. Um, famous philosopher Jean-Francois Léotard, who actually is the one who introduced the term postmodern to the world. Previously, that term had only been used by art critics, but he used it to describe everything. He says, I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta-narratives, which is another way of saying What it means to be a person today is to be skeptical, doubtful of the existence of one story that explains everything. The defining feature of our age is the rejection of the existence of a singular story that makes sense of life, the universe, and everything. But the problem is that even as we we doubt that, even as we reject the possibility of one singular meta-narrative, that's not how we live. We live as if we're part of a story. And so it's worth doing this kind of cultural excavation about ourselves, even if you don't think it's real, okay? So what kind of stories might we be tempted to believe about ourselves in the world? The first kind of story you might be tempted to believe is what we might call the enlightenment progress story. It's a story of ascent. It's a story that trends upward. It's a race to the top. The universal version of the story would be um, what enlightenment theorists believe, that rational thought plus scientific reasoning will inevitably lead toward moral, social, and ethical progress. The world is going to get what? Better and better. We're on our way up. It's a story of ascent. And the personal version of that is I'm improving, or at least I'm capable of improving. With the right combination of education and economic opportunity, I'm on my way to being a better version of myself, right? That's the upward story of enlightenment progress. But that's not the only story that's out there. There's also downward stories, aren't there? Let's call this next story the downward story of the noble victim. The noble victim. It's a story of struggle and oppression. It's a race not to the top, but to the bottom. The universal version of the story is that human history is basically the tale of how the strong prey on the weak is a story of oppressors and the oppressed. And there are kind of sub-stories within this, and they're all kind of liberation stories. There's like the liberation from economic oppression story. This is where Marxists and Leninists believe that in order to be emancipated, society has to go through a revolution. It's the revolution story. Or there's the freedom from sexual identity oppression story. This is a little more leaning on Sigmund Freud. Freudian theory holds that human history is basically the narrative of the repression of sexual desires. And so to live into that story is to seek freedom, liberation from that kind of oppression. Or maybe, maybe it's the freedom from male oppression. Many hold that patriarchy has systemically oppressed and subjugated women throughout history. Maybe that's the dominant tale that we're in. Or maybe it's the story of racial oppression. 
And the specifics are different depending on where you are in the world. But if you're in Richmond, then it's the narrative of white supremacy, right? That's the dominant story. And so if, that's, if those are the universal theories out there, what's the personal version? Well, the personal version is the chips are stacked against you. You're a victim of bad parenting or difficult childhood or discrimination because of your race or gender or class or ethnicity or culture. Your life is this kind of noble, valiant, uphill struggle against those who are more powerful than you, right? And there are so many versions of this. So is the story of the world up or is it down? Or maybe it's neither. Maybe it's just around and around. What's this, what's the circular story? Well, you might call it the circle of life or maybe a bit more specifically, the balance of karma. It's a story of fairness. The story of the world is this never-ending race. Universally speaking, we might say what goes around comes around. What you put in is what you get out. The world is no better or no worse than it's ever been before. Nothing's really changed. It's not up or down. It's just a squiggly line that goes through time. At a personal level, the way this sounds is I basically get what I deserve. I've been rewarded for the good that I've done and I've been punished for the bad that I've done. If I'm behind, it's my fault. If I'm ahead, it's because I'm good. So the story could go up, the story could go down, the story could go in circles, or maybe there's no story at all. Cold, scientific materialism. Your life and everybody else's life is just a random accident. Consciousness and self-awareness are just evolutionary features. They don't mean anything. When you die, you're done. And when our son dies, life is done. The end, right? So the story could go up, the story could go down, the story could go in circles, or maybe it just stops. Maybe there's no story at all. Now, before we go any further, we must dignify there is something right buried within each one of these stories. Progress does happen in some places and in some ways for some people, right? Sometimes the line really does go up and to the right. I don't want to go back to a pre-penicillin world, yeah? (laughs) Sometimes the story does go down. Economic, sexual, gender, and racial oppression are all real, And those are uphill battles that are actually worth fighting. And on the average, there are patterns in history that do seem to be repeated. I mean, that old axiom, that old proverbial wisdom, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. There is truth in that, isn't there? Right? And at the same time, so much of life really does feel pretty random at times. And it's hard to argue with death and extinction. They do seem to win 100% of the time. Yeah? But each one of these stories, for all of its strengths, also has some shortcomings. Actually, a singular shortcoming, and it's this. Each one of these stories requires that you be the hero. And you and I are not good at being heroes. Back to Jonathan Gottschall's book, The Storytelling Animal, he writes, this need to see ourselves as the striving heroes of our own epic tale actually warps our sense of self. After all, it's not easy to be a protagonist. Fictional protagonists tend to be young, attractive, smart, and brave. All things that most of us are not. (laughs) Fictional protagonists usually live interesting lives that are marked by intense conflict and drama. We don't. And then, this is so mean. Average Americans work retail or cubicle jobs and then spend their nights watching protagonists do interesting things on television while they dip pork rinds in Miracle Whip. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) Now, because each one of these dominant stories requires each of us as individuals to be the hero, they cannot be a shared story. Here's what I mean. Think about maps. 
You remember maps? Those used to be real, right? I mean the paper map, the old-fashioned map that you like take out of the glove compartment and you have to fold it out and you spread it out on the dashboard and then what do you have to do next? Figure out where you are, right? There's one map. There could be lots of people and each person has to figure out where they are on the map. But that's not how maps work anymore, do they? Now how do you use maps? You pull out your device, you open up your maps feature and it comes up and there's a dot right in the middle, the center of the universe. And who is it? It is you. You are the center of the universe. All reality orients and orbits around you, right? You are the hero of your own little map app, right? Now, the problem with that is that we can't all be the center of the map. We can't all be the hero of the story. And so we have to keep asking, is there a larger story which, of which we can all be a part? At this point, it's appropriate for us to introduce the sort of counter-narrative that the Bible offers. And you were wondering, when on earth is he going to get to the Bible? Okay, here it is. What kind of counter-narrative does the Bible offer? Well, there's this famous interaction between a Hindu scholar and Leslie Newbigin, who was a British missionary in India back in the day. And this Hindu scholar says, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion here in India. We don't need any more. He goes on to say, I find in your Christian Bible a unique interpretation of universal history and of the human race. This is unique. There's nothing else in the whole world of religious literature to put alongside it. Now, what this Hindu scholar was rightly observing is that the biblical story is just that. It's a story which is different from all the other religious literature filled with doctrines and principles and propositions out there. C.S. Lewis actually says the very same thing, but true to form in more poetic language. He describes the Bible as what he calls a true myth. And as soon as we say the word myth, most of us kind of get the wrong impression because we think of myths as inherently things that are not real, right? That are not true. But he's using the word myth in a scholarly way, saying, hey, what do myths do for people? What does mythology do for a person or for a society? It gives them orientation to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And C.S. Lewis describes the Bible this way. He says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as all the other myths, but with this tremendous difference in that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth where the others are humanity's myths, i.e. the pagan stories are of God expressing himself through the minds of poets, using such images as he found there, whereas Christianity is God expressing himself through what we might call real things. So the biblical story offers this unique interpretation of universal human history, and there's nothing else like it. The biblical story presents itself as a true myth, a story that makes sense of life, the universe, and everything, but does so through real historical events. Now, in order to understand the biblical story, we need to sort of frame it in terms of movements, or if you want to call it chapters, okay? And there are four movements or chapters to the biblical story. And some of you might have already heard these, and if you've taken the foundations class here at Redeemer, then you've heard this language before. They are creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. These four chapters answer four of the most basic questions that you and I might have about any story. Whether you're reading your kid, Goodnight Moon, before you put them to bed, 
or whether you're studying the Iliad and the Odyssey. These are four basic questions about any story. Where did this all begin? What went wrong? How can it be made right? And where is this all going? Now, the first movement of the story we call creation. And and to understand it, we go to the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. And listen, uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but listen if you can. The best way to read Genesis chapters one and two is as a poetic, theological, narrative liturgy. Okay? Poetic, theological, narrative liturgy. That sounds like a lot, but you need to see this or hear this and understand this because the mistake that so many people make when they open the Bible and begin to read, especially if they start at the beginning, is they think they're reading their biology earth science textbook, and that's not what you're reading. You're reading poetic, theological, narrative liturgy. There is a cadence, there's a rhythm to the creational story as it unfolds. God creates with his words. He creates spaces, and then he fills those spaces. And the pinnacle of creation is humanity, the human race made to bear the image of God. The defining feature of the creation movement, the beginning of the story, is this word shalom. And if it sounds like I'm speaking a different language, it's because I am. That's a Hebrew word, shalom. It's a word pregnant with meaning. It means harmonious wholeness. You could put dashes between all these words and say, everything the way it's meant to be, shalom, harmonious wholeness. But then we move to the second chapter or the second movement of the story, the fall, the fall into sin. And it begins in Genesis chapter three and it unravels all the way through to Genesis chapter 11. So Genesis chapters three through 11 are this cascading fall or decline into sin. Genesis chapter three involves the first human beings eating forbidden fruit and being cast out of the garden. They're seeking to supplant God with themselves, choosing autonomous individualism over and above submission and obedience to God. Who gets to be in charge? That's the struggle of Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter four, the effects of sin begin to seep out and infect everything in the world. Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy because he doesn't understand or trust his own place in the story, his relationship to self, God, others in the world. Cain feels that all of those are threatened and out of that, he murders his brother. Genesis five through 10 is the story of Noah and the ark, which by the way, not a children's story at all. Like there are animals, but that's about as far as it goes, okay? Noah's ark is a grown-up story. It's a story of judgment and salvation. The story of Noah is a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of the story of the entire world from beginning to end. You have creation, you have judgment, you have salvation, and then you have new creation with a new humanity. That's the story of Noah, it's five through 10. And then in Genesis chapter 11, you've got the story of the Tower of Babel, the height of rebellion against God from humans and ends with the fracturing and the dividing of the human race. So from Genesis 3 to 11, everything unravels. The whole thing falls apart. And in our first lesson this morning, which Lane read from Romans chapter 8, you have this phrase, all of creation is groaning. And it's this metaphorical description of what it feels like to be alive on planet earth today, that everything is somehow broken. Nothing is as it should be. All creation, including ourselves, are groaning. And so if shalom is the defining feature of the creation movement, shalom broken or shalom fractured is the defining feature of the fall into sin. But then comes movement number three, 
God is on a mission to win back humanity and to renew his broken world. And he includes people in his mission, which is fascinating. So many people wonder, why doesn't the biblical story go creation, fall, Jesus? Can we just skip the whole Old Testament, right? But what a mistake that would be. That's not the kind of God the Bible describes. It describes a God who includes people in his mission, in his work. And that we see that in the story of Israel through the Old Testament. That mission begins with Israel, choosing a people, blessing a people. Why? In order for them to be a conduit of God's blessing to all the other nations of the world. But what happens? Israel struggles and eventually fails in her calling becoming just as sinful and corrupt as all the nations around her. And the end of the Old Testament leaves you with this dangling, depressing cliffhanger. What will happen? God has given his people a call and a vocation, and they've failed in it. So what's going to happen next? Well, our second reading today was from John chapter 1, in which God responds to the failures of his people, not by writing them out of the story, but by writing himself into the story. What does John 1 and Romans chapter 8 have to do with each other? Well, Romans 8 tells the story of creation corrupted and groaning to be made new. And John 1 tells us that at the center of that story is Jesus, God in the flesh. And just as God created the world with his word in the very beginning in Genesis 1, so God begins his new creation again with his word, only this time it's word made flesh. Jesus is both, therefore, the new humanity, living faithfully where Adam and Eve and all the rest failed. He's also the new Israel, obeying the Father and blessing the world where Israel failed. Jesus' death is a substitutionary death, receiving in his body the ultimate penalty for the fallen to sin. And his resurrection is a substitutionary resurrection, a victory over sin and death, inaugurating a new humanity, which is the church. The church, marked by baptism, nourished by the Eucharist, by the Lord's Supper, served by priests and pastors, laboring in the world, a people who are once more included in the story of God. If the defining feature of the creation movement is shalom, if the defining feature of the fall movement is shalom broken, the defining feature of the redemption movement is shalom in process. The restoration has begun. And this moves us towards the fourth and culminating chapter in the story, which we see hinted at and foreshadowed at in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The whole earth made new. God's people do not escape out into heaven. Heaven comes to earth and fills up earth, renewing and restoring all things. The church is raised from the dead. We read about that in Romans 8. Given new resurrection bodies and they inhabit a new city where they take up afresh their vocation as image bearers of God and reign under God and over the world forever and ever and ever. The story begins in a garden, but it culminates in a city. The story begins with innocent, naive beauty, but it, and it goes down into tragedy and ruin. It is resurrected through sacrifice and it crescendos in a renewed culture in the city. It's a story about a king who establishes his kingdom on earth, not through conquest, but through service, not through power, but through weakness, and not through vengeance, but through love. The defining feature of the new creation is shalom restored and shalom at rest. So these are the four movements of the biblical story, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And just think for a minute with me how those four movements speak to 
the four fundamental relationships that every single one of us has. Each one of us has a relationship with ourselves, with God, whether we know him and like him or not, with each other horizontally, and then with the world beneath us, right? How does this transform the relationship with the self? Or what story does it tell about our relationship with ourselves? Well, the story tells us that you and I were made for good. We've been corrupted by sin. The restoration process can begin through faith in Jesus, and it will be consummated in the resurrection of the body in the new creation. It tells a story about our relationship with God, that we are made for relationship with God. We've been estranged from God through sin, which is why so many of us almost all the time do not feel or experience God's presence but that the restoration of that relationship can begin through faith and baptism in Jesus. It can be nurtured by the sacraments and the spiritual practices of the church, and it will be consummated one day at the marriage supper of God and his church in the new creation. What about our relationship with each other? It says that you and I were made for relationship with one another. We've been estranged from each other through sin, which is why friendship is so hard, and it's why Richmond has recently been ranked the fourth loneliest city in the country. More on that later. But these relationships can be restored through the new humanity inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus, consummated in the new creation when all nations, all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues will dwell together in peace within and beneath God's peace. It tells a story about the world, how you and I were made for stewardship and vocational work with the world, the material creation, but it's been distorted and exploited through sin. And we can reclaim that vocation through the completed work of Jesus. And we look forward to the day we'll be fully restored to our vocational role as vice regents, stewards of the earth in the new creation. Now, I'm gonna take us back to that original definition of the gospel. And what I hope we all hear together is how rich and full of meaning the word gospel is. What is the gospel? In Jesus Christ, God takes his creation, which has because of sin fallen into ruin, and redemptively restores it in every part until the time of consummation in which all things will at last be made new. It is this Christ-centered, comprehensive, restorational gospel that should animate the life and witness of the Christian church. And at this point, we're all thinking, that's too much theology for one sermon, right? We're just going to keep going, though, because this matters so very much. Now, let's think together. How does that story, that meta-narrative of the Bible, actually dignify all the other stories that we've been talking about? And how does it bring them all together in a way that is better and more full, a more perfect narrative? Well, to the narrative of progress and enlightenment, that things are just going to get better, the gospel story says, yes, things are going to get better, but not through you not through your efforts, but through Christ's redemption. To the story of oppression, the gospel story says Jesus becomes the most oppressed victim. But then he triumphs over all other powers, not through struggling for more power, but by giving up power and subverting power with his own voluntary sacrifice on the cross. To the story, the cyclical story of karma, of everybody gets what they deserve, The gospel story comes to us and says, we do not get the punishment we deserve, but we do get the the reward we do not deserve. And to the no story narrative, to the death and extinction are the end narrative, the gospel story comes to us and says, death and extinction are actually overcome. 
Life and story are victorious over random change and meaninglessness. Death does not win 100% of the time. There is an exception, a loophole. And the good news of the gospel is that you can access the exception and the loophole through Jesus. Christ has opened the way to eternal life through his own death and resurrection, and you can follow him through it. So, what kind of story is the gospel story? Another big word here. The gospel story is something of a eucatastrophe, meaning a story that has a sudden and unexpected turn of events that resolves into a happy ending. A eucatastrophe is a story that appears to be going down, but then all of a sudden, in a twist, goes up. A eucatastrophe is something like this. The incarnation of Jesus is the eucatastrophe to the story of the human race. The story of the Old Testament goes down. Things get worse. Things fall apart. And then into that story of humanity's descent comes the incarnation. God becomes a person. That is surprising. Didn't see that coming. And it begins to bring things up. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of Jesus. God becomes a person, yes, but then what kind of life does he live? One of poverty and suffering, ending in crucifixion. The story of Jesus goes down, but then resurrection, a surprising twist. Didn't see that coming, and it resolves into a happy ending. Now, how is the eucatastrophe story of the gospel good news for us today? Well, listen if you can. This is a story of unconditional love to us who dwell in a culture of transactional relationships. It's a story of dignity for those of us who live in a culture of shame. It's a story of hope for you and I who live in a very cynical age. It's a story of reconciliation for you and I who live in a divided world. It's a story of salvation for you and I who live in the despair of the self-help society. And the story is not only true, but it's also good. It's even beautiful. It's a better story. And we must become the kind of people who not only believe the story, as so many of you already do. So many of you walked into the room this morning already believing everything I've just said. Like, I believe it. I think those things are true. But do you love the story? Are you just as swept up in the story? Just as much as you believe that it's true. You see... The invitation is not just to believe in the objective truth of the story, but actually to locate yourself in the story and begin to see and interpret everything from the inside. George Lenbeck puts it this way. To become a Christian means learning the story of Israel and of Jesus well enough to interpret and experience oneself and one's world in its terms. C.S. Lewis, true to form, puts it a little bit more poetically, where he writes... I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, that's objective belief, but because by it, I see everything else. Meaning, I'm in the story. It interprets everything for me. So, how do you and I go about becoming people who practice seeing the story from the inside? Or, if you're a skeptical person, how could you try this on for size to see if it actually helps you interpret and experience all the events of your life. Well, at a personal level, I'm going to say something really predictable here, okay? Some of you saw this coming a mile away. Read the Bible. Take up the practice of reading Scripture and reading the Bible. But listen, 
take up the practice of reading the Bible and reading the scripture with almost the opposite motivation and intention than most Christians tend to have when they approach the Bible. Most people approach the Bible this way. I'm going to read the Bible to extract something out of it for me and for my life, right? To be someone who practices seeing the story from the inside, you're really doing the very opposite. I'm reading the Bible to get me into the story. I'm trying to bring myself into the story, not take a principle out of the story for me. It means praying, taking up the practice of regular prayer, not just every day, but throughout the day, habitually making it a part of your regular ebb and flow and rhythm and practice, striking up a conversation with God, who is the storyteller. It means generosity, bringing all of your resources, not just money, but all of your material resources, all of the stuff of your life to bear as you participate in the story. Because your participation does not only happen in your mind, it happens in the real world, the material world. Part of how you know and can tell that you're the kind of person who is participating in the story is it's not just something you think about. It's something you regularly act on. This is true in our work and our service. Every act you do, from cooking breakfast to balancing a stock portfolio, is a means of participating in the story. And that's just at an individual level. What about communally? Well, I mean, one of the things you know about the life of us, Redeemer, as a parish, is that we have a very high value for small groups. And one of the reasons why we value small groups so highly is that these are places where we gather around the story to not only read the story, but actually to help each other locate one another in the story. We do this week in and week out in our living rooms and around kitchen tables, in each other's homes and apartments. As we gather around the story, we are helping one another week over week begin to see the story from the inside. We do this in our liturgy every single Sunday when we gather. And you're going to hear, excuse me, echoes of this all throughout this service. You've already heard some echoes of it already. We do it in our scripture reading. We do it whenever we recite a creed. We did the Apostles' Creed earlier this morning. We're going to do the Nicene Creed next week. Did you notice that even the Christian creeds are narrative in nature? There's something of a plot here. They move. It's not just a list of principles. When we come to the Lord's table, there's a rehearsing of the story. Not only in the liturgy that I pray before we come to the table together, but actually in the bread and wine itself, in the elements. The sacraments of the church are, are like embodied stories. Think about baptism. Baptism is the means by which we move from fall to redemption, from estranged from God and self and others in the world to reconnected and redeemed and restored with relationship with God, self, others in the world. Baptism is the way we enter the story. And then the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, is a means by which we embody and participate in the story together. This meal that we take with our mouths into our bodies every week, we are nourished by the storyteller. And if you're thinking together right now, okay, it's a lot of practices, but how do those practices help us become what you said was the main idea, to become missionally present here in our place and in our time? Listen, As we become people of the story, 
who are not just believing the story, but practicing the story and learning to see and interpret all of life from inside the story. We are becoming people who are therefore able to offer to our neighbors and to our city a better story. A story that does not exhaust, a story that does not only take, a story that does not require them to be the hero, but a better story, a more beautiful tale in which they can find themselves. And not just with words. We do this as people who are demonstrating, who are living a better story. So Redeemer family, we exist to practice gospel formation for missional presence. And the first way we practice this is through engaging and participating in the biblical story as the true and better narrative within which to understand life, the universe, and everything. As we continue in worship, let's practice the story together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you have made us to be these storytelling, story-inhabiting creatures. Thank you for giving us not just a list of doctrines and propositions, but a story that is not only true, but is one in which we can participate and inhabit. Would you help us, by your Spirit and through our practices, to ever more deeply move into your story so that we might see and interpret absolutely everything in terms of your gospel story. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.